Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, you say in your word that many of us approach you um, either weak, either idle, or faint-hearted, perhaps even as the author of Hebrews says, stubborn. And we know your Holy Spirit works through your word in such a way where each of us in the postures of our heart are spoken to clearly and powerfully. So we ask that you do just that today as we submit ourselves to your words in Luke 4. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, Have you ever noticed how oddly satisfying it is when someone or something which claimed to be too good to be true ends up actually being too good to be true? And we get to delight a little bit in that uh, exposure. As much as our world hates the idea of hypocrisy, we love it when hypocrisy is exposed. We get a, a, a little bit excited about it. In that exposure, there's vindication that we were right. It makes us feel a little bit more comfortable about our own short failings. It makes us feel better about who we are. And it brings a little bit of sweet justice into our lives to see other people called out for their own failings. But this desire that we have towards hypocrites or frauds or imposters, this desire both to not want to be one, but also to expose one, is not a new or modern desire. In fact, it existed far before any fail blogs or expose documentaries ever hit your Netflix queue. And it's this desire which is on display in our passage in Luke this morning. If you've been with us today, we're in Luke's second movement where he is constantly trying to prepare us for Jesus's ministry by describing to us the unique person who Jesus is or who Jesus is at least claiming to be. In Luke chapter two, Jesus made the bold claim that he was the son of God. This was followed up by the preaching of John the Baptist, which seemed to affirm that as being true. He was preparing the way for the one who would be the Christ. And last week we saw this enhanced in two different ways. When Jesus was baptized, God the Father spoke and said, Jesus, you are my son. And then Luke gives us this fun list of names we made Johnny read for us last week, this genealogy, which shows that Jesus is in fact, by birthright, the son of God. And so four times now, in a span of less than two chapters, Luke has emphasized that Jesus is the son of God. Here's a good Bible reading tip. If they say it four times, that's probably the main point. Luke wants you to know who Jesus is. And that's because if Jesus is going to be the Christ, which as we talked about last week means to be the savior, then he must be the perfect son of God. And if Jesus were to be the perfect son of God, it would mean that Jesus would have to also be the always faithful son of God. When we use the term perfect, we describe perfect things from a human perspective. Nothing's perfect. But if Jesus is to be the son of God, he must be totally perfect. 
If at any point this perfect son was unfaithful to the father, he would cease to be the perfect son. He would be no different than those villains we love seeing exposed on those documentaries, those two-faced, self-inflated liars. But more than that, he would be of no hope to anyone who claimed to experience salvation through the Son. Well, today, a character is introduced to us in the book of Luke who is completely unconvinced and unamused at Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. Namely, that's because this character has seen humanity's best before. And he has seen them constantly proven to be a fraud. This person is the devil. It's one who in other places of scripture is called the evil one or Satan. His name in the Greek text today is diabolos, which means one who engages in slander. And the devil appearing here in Luke chapter four has one goal in mind, one sole purpose, and that is to slander Jesus and to expose him as the fraud Satan believes he is. He's going to tempt Jesus in three distinct ways under the guise of Jesus proving his claim. But Satan, the sly deceiver that he is, knows that if he can entice Jesus into responding responding to any of his temptations, that he would be tricking Jesus into actually being unfaithful to the Father. And if Jesus tried to vindicate himself according to the devil, he would actually be proving that he was no perfect son of God at all. But ironically, by the end of this passage, Jesus has proven what he's claimed the whole time, that he is the son of God. And instead, the great tables had been turned. And the fraudster and the imposter in this text is the false promise of sin and the devil who sits on a real but borrowed authority. And what we're going to see today is one simple point. And that is that Jesus is the true victor over the devil and real hope for sinners. Jesus is the true, the exclusive victor over the devil and real hope for sinners. We're going to see three pictures in this text which drive this home. First, we're going to see the trial of life in the wilderness. Then we're going to see the trial of greatest temptation. And then lastly, in verses 13 through 15, we will see the trustworthiness of God. So as we look at those things, let's begin by looking at our first point, which comes to us in Luke 4, verses 1 through 3. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, which is where Jesus was just baptized, where John the Baptist was working, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing in those days, and he was hungry. And so here we encounter our first point today. Here we see the trial of life in the wilderness. We live in a culture where our wealth and our technology provide wonderful relief from many of the pains of life. How many of you last week in Missoula had opened your windows and perhaps turned on your fans, and this week you shuttered everything up and hoped your furnace still worked? We have technology which brings comfort into our lives. We have air conditioning and forced air furnaces. Our bodies have medicine and surgeries which not only extend our life, but actually add comfort in our life by alleviating certain wounds and weaknesses. And while these common graces should lead us to glorify God because it is God who sends rain on the just and the unjust, 
if we're honest with ourselves, more times than not, don't these graces that God gives us generally actually lead us into more of a frustration towards God when life gets hard, when the air conditioning doesn't work, when our knees and our backs ache? How many of us think that when life becomes hard emotionally, spiritually, financially, physically, and comfort seems to be fleeting, that the only possible conclusion is that something is wrong, that there's no good that can come from this, that perhaps God is punishing you, or maybe it speaks to the character of God, and if life is like this, then God is not good, or at least he's not good to me. But don't we see here, in the life of our Lord Jesus, that it's often the will of God to lead us into the discomfort of the wilderness. Now it's true that in the wilderness, Jesus is not going to be tempted by the Father. He's going to be tempted by the devil. That's because James 1 helps us understand the character of God all the more when he says God cannot tempt anyone. Why? Because he has no evil inside of himself. God has no evil bait to place on the hook for your heart. He can't tempt you with what he himself is not. God is good. And to be tempted towards goodness would be the greatest of all temptations. (laughs) The problem is not that God tempts us. The problem is that our sinful heart and that the work of the devil are prone to weakness. And that sometimes God leads us into a place where in his will, the temptation of another is meant to expose our own hearts. But what is true about this scene is that the only reason Jesus was alone and hungry in the wilderness is not because he wandered off course, not because he was the prodigal son leaving the way, but because the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, led him there. If the whole work of the Trinity, God the Father's plan, the leading of the Holy Spirit, and the active obedience of Jesus Christ brought him hungry and alone to a place to be tested in the wilderness, how much more ought we as believers to perhaps perhaps reframe our thoughts and our experiences with discomfort and testing? Consider some examples in the Old Testament. First, when the presence of God came and Moses received the law and Mount Sinai was literally aflame with the holy presence of God and people were fearful, look at what Moses said in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you go over there. You speak to us, and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear, this discomfort they experienced, the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin." The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Or consider, after God graciously redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt, only to be met by those same people disobeying God, what Moses reminded them of in the wilderness in Deuteronomy 8 verse 2. And you shall remember, you Israel, you disobedient faithless people, 
the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. So as much as our culture is concerned about hypocrisy, do you realize that God is concerned about it too? That God is not disinterested in what we say and how we act. He wants his people to be holy as he is holy. He wants his children to look like his children and to act like his children and to behave like his children and not to claim the family name only to spend the rest of the week living at the neighbor's house. But here's the wonderful beauty and contrast of the gospel. When culture catches you in your hypocrisy, that is when what you say is seemingly canceled out by what you do or who you are, they crucify you. And now more than ever, don't we see this cancel culture that exists where if you get caught acting hypocritically, specifically if you're in a position of power or celebrity, there's no coming back from that. There is no mercy when you have been tabbed as a fraud. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, when our actions fail to live up to our identity, the grace of God is precisely that he comes to you, not to crucify you, but to point you to the one who was already crucified in your place. Which means in these moments of testing, when we are confronted with imbalances, inadequacies, and active sin in our own hearts, God's goal in it is not purely to crush you, but to actually show you that the grace of the cross is sufficient for your time of need. And as we saw in Exodus 20, that it's this exposure that is meant to lead you away from sin. It is meant to give you the strength you need to see your weakness come to God for grace and by his mercy and in his power, Strive to do better in the future. Look at the hope of walking through the wilderness for the believer in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this, you rejoice. When the Bible says rejoice, it's probably a good thing to ask, what are we rejoicing over? <laughs> because often it's not what we think. Look at what we rejoice at now. Though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved the world can't reconcile grief and joy, but the gospel can. Grieved by various trials, so that the purpose of the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in what? In praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Consider the words of the apostle James in James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all, Joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so in this passage we see in Luke 4, we see in historic narrative form the truths that we just read. That even if God were to bring us into temptation in the desert and parched mouths and hungry stomachs begin to rear their head, even then for the believer, God has not forgotten his plan to do you good. God is not far from you. He has not forgotten you. 
but he's actually with you, leading you in the midst of it so that at the end you might have something better than what you had before. And what we see in this passage, Luke chapter four, is certainly, even as Bridger just prayed, portraits of hope. Hope that one might be able to resist temptation. We see that Jesus stood firm, that believers who therefore stand in Christ might, in the words of Paul, be able to withstand the evil one. The promise of victory is promised in this text. We also see a practical tool that Jesus modeled for us. Those of you who have been doing our Bible reading plan have already committed this to memory. Psalm 119.11, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Three temptations Jesus responds to with three quotations of scripture. If you catch on fire, what are you supposed to do? Stop, drop, and roll. Okay? You're supposed to stop, drop, and roll. Why do you know that? Because you've hidden it in your heart. Now, here's the deal. I've never met someone who's actually caught on fire. And yet most of you already know to stop, drop, and roll. But I can tell you this. You have a much higher chance of being tempted to sin than you do of catching on fire. Ought it not to be our privilege for our first response to hide the reality of God's promise in our hearts so that in the instance where we find our heart and our soul tempted, we have something to say and something to do. You see, Jesus' use of scripture should influence our use of scripture, that maybe we should start thinking in God's terms and maybe we should put to practice some of his wisdom. But while we have these pictures of practical pointers and steps in here, despite the practical implications of this passage in our fight against sin, this story, this event is not about you. It's not about quick trips, trips, tricks, tips, tricks and tips. I feel like Dr. Seuss up here. And we know that because while Jesus quotes scripture, who else quotes scripture in this passage? The devil. Satan takes up the same tactics as Jesus. If quick tips and get out of temptation free cards are your only hope when it comes to resisting the devil, you will realize those are inadequate. They don't work. We need something more than helpful tips to resist temptation. We need the promise of a savior who has already defeated sin and the devil. How many of you are familiar with the story of Excalibur and King Arthur? Excalibur was this magical sword imbued with whatever magical swords get imbued with and it was sealed in a stone by a curse and all the big CrossFit knights of the day came to this stone and they chalked up their hands and they grabbed that and they tried to get it out of the stone and it didn't work. And then the next most machismo knight would push aside the one who was before and they'd give it a go and they'd use all their might and try to get it and they couldn't. And this young boy named Arthur comes grabs the sword, easily pulls it out of the stone. And the point is simple, isn't it? No one reads that story and be like, well, if Carl didn't skip leg day, he could have done it. (laughs) And more importantly, you don't walk away from that story and saying, I could have done it. Instead, the point of the story is to stress what? Only Arthur could have done it. He's the distinct one. 
He's the main point of the whole story. You see, behind Jesus' testing is not merely quick tips for resisting sin, but there is a stunning display of how one is set free from slavery to sin by a commitment to God's covenant faithfulness in Jesus Christ. Jesus knew better than anyone the faithfulness of God. Why? Because he was God. He existed as the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, for all eternity. And it's therefore Jesus' understanding of God's promise and his unwavering commitment to it that not only shows us how we might resist sin, but gives us hope from the, the punishment of sin. Gives us hope from slavery to sin. In other words, we can and should find great hope in our fight against sin in this text, but the primary point is not to see how you might defeat sin, but instead to see how Jesus is the only one who could. And this point is stressed all the more clearly when we realize what this came on the heels of. Remember, if you've got your Bibles open before you, look right up and see what comes before it, and you see all the son of a, son of a, son of a, son of a, Jesse and Boaz and names we can't say. And that's because what Luke is showing us is that when you look at the spectrum of all of history, this son of God is the one you've been waiting for. This is the rebirth of hope of being won back into God's family. And this scene is all the more illuminated by the fact that this is not the first son of God to be confronted by the devil in the wild. If you look right back at chapter three, verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. In Genesis three, the first created son of God, Adam, was confronted in the, de- in the garden by the devil. With all of his cunning, Adam failed. With living in perfection, Adam couldn't cherish God's word. He sinned. He doubted God's goodness. He listened to the serpent. Moreover, the nation of Israel, another representation of God's people, brought out of slavery, redeemed by God, disobeyed him. And for 40 years, they were punished by wandering around in the wilderness. Where Adam failed in the garden, All humanity was enslaved to sin and death. But here, Jesus, in terms that should be lighting up our brains, Jesus, the new son of God, after his own 40 days in the wilderness, is once more confronted by Satan. Once more, you can imagine a familiar scene replayed in the devil's mind. I've seen this before. I know exactly what to do. You can imagine he might be excited to get another crack at another son of God. Just as Adam failed and all humanity sinned, just as Israel failed and the whole nation suffered, here there was another chance to get at another person and remove hope from those who are in bondage to sin. But this man is not like the rest. This man is the son of God par excellence, born of a woman and of the Holy Spirit. 
The Apostle Paul in the the book of Romans makes it clear there are two family heads we can belong to, two lines, and the integrity of those lines are what is at stake in this text. There is the line of Adam, that is anyone born of man. Raise your hand if you're born of a man and a woman. Okay, a few of you, that's good. And, And so to be born in there is to be born under the punishment of Adam's sin. We are born sinful. We are born enslaved to sin. We are born unable not to sin. That doesn't mean that we are as sinful as we could be at any given moment of time, but it means that at any given moment of time, we are at some point sinful. But then there's a new line, and that is the line of Jesus Christ, the new head. This is those who are born of man. That's all you who raised your hand but perhaps those who are also born of God. That is those who by faith come to God through Jesus Christ. And that line are those who, though sinful, are finally set free from sin. And for the first time, able to say no to what controlled our hearts before Jesus came. But the freedom you might have as an individual believer relies on Jesus being good enough, son enough to pass this test. Is he actually the better son? And here's where we encounter the story of Jesus' temptation today. And this is our second point, the trial of greatest temptation. Read with me Luke 4, verses 3 through 13. The devil said to him, that's to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So here we see three specific challenges, three temptations the devil throws at Jesus, two of which, the book ends, attack Jesus' identity, and the middle attacks attacks Jesus' desire. In other words, Satan knows full well the two hooks that he can often play with to entice you to sin. And that is who you think you are and what you think you want who you think you are, and what you think you want. In the face of these affronts, Jesus is able to withstand them, demonstrating his unflinching commitment to God as the one who defines who he is and what he should want in life. You see, sinful temptation simultaneously preys on what we think about ourselves and what we think about God. And we know this because the devil shows exactly this because it's on the heels of the heavens themselves opening. God the Father audibly saying, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased that he questions Jesus on that very point. If you're the son of God, 
he immediately pulls out the playbook that he used in Genesis chapter three. When he approached Adam and Eve with the same line of questioning and says, did God really say? You see, the devil wanted Jesus to doubt, as Adam and Eve did, the power of God's word and the goodness of it. If he was the son of God, he didn't have to be hungry anymore. Even though the spirit of God led him into the wilderness, he could do something about it. He could make bread. But Jesus quoted in part what Moses quotes in full in Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 through 4. It says this, And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether he would keep his, you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothing did not wear out and your foot did not swell these 40 years. So what Jesus does in all three of his responses is he quotes from two specific passages of Deuteronomy where Moses' goal in those passages is to prepare God's people for testing. They are on the threshold of the promised land, and this is what Moses is saying. There's going to be hardships. There's going to be times where you feel God is leaving you hungry, leaving you alone, and forgetting you altogether. But in those moments, remember God's faithfulness. Remember that he cannot forsake his promise. These 40 years, your feet didn't swell, your clothes didn't wear out, and you're worried about being hungry. If God gave you the world's greatest tevas, do you think he's gonna neglect your stomach? No, God is faithful because he gave a promise to bring them out of slavery and into a better place. And here in the midst of temptations in the flesh, Jesus says, God's word, God's promise is greater than anything else. If the spirit led him there, the spirit would see him through. If God was with him, he would continue to be with him. And there's a little bit more here to the devil's cunning. Because what he is in in essence saying to Jesus, he's saying this, he's saying, if you are the son of God, stop acting like a man. Start acting like a God. Stop being such a human. Life's hard, the wilderness is big. Make this stone to be your bread and eat it. But if Jesus would have done this, Jesus would have shown himself to be of no hope to any of us who are not God. If the only way we can trust God's faithfulness when things get hard, when it seems evil is pressing in or our flesh is breaking down, if our only hope is to wave some magic God wand and transform creation in front of us, that's good news only to those who can wave a magic wand and transform creation in front of them. And that's exactly what Jesus is after. He is saying, man does not live by bread alone. In other words, he is showing us how reasonable it is for a man in a moment to put aside Jesus' own use of divinity and to say, but not my brothers in the flesh. They can't do this. They can't turn stone into bread. And I'm going to show them that when it seems you can't get out from under that hunger, that you can trust God. 
and that he's faithful. Jesus set aside the use of his supernatural gifts to show us that we don't need supernatural abilities to endure temptations. We just need supernatural faith. We need to see that this God who was faithful is the God who is faithful. We can trust God's word and his promises and his provision even when it seems difficult. And so here Jesus, the son, fully resisted the temptation of the devil by showing what it looks like to faithfully trust the father. That you don't need magical relief. You need to see the size of the father that Jesus shows us in this text. And so being foiled once, the devil moves away from tempting Jesus in the flesh and begins to tempt Jesus in the desires of his heart. He takes him up in a spectacular way. He shows him in this instant of time, the whole world, and he promises that all of it, the whole of it would be all his if only he would worship the devil. Right after Jesus showed his unflinching trust in the father, there's almost this sleight of hand the devil is using. He's taking him up in a moment of time. He's showing him this. There's nations and glory all around. It's almost as if he's intentionally meaning to distract Jesus from an awareness of the other parts of the Godhead. There's no Holy Spirit here. There's no father here. But look at what is here. And I'm offering it all to you. Here is power, authority, worship, without having to share it with those other two nosy members of the Godhead. Here is a plan for Jesus's glory that is separate from the Trinity's plan for Jesus's glory. And it's all offered to him. If only he would take it. But Jesus refuses it. He knew that apart from the worship of the Father, there is no glory. Apart from the service of the Father, there is no authority. Jesus knew the temptation of Adam, which still grips our hearts today. And that is that we often look at the desires of our heart and we think our only hope for joy is in what we get. That we might get those things. That Adam might get to be like God. But what Jesus the Son shows us here is that our greatest joy is instead what we give, namely glory, worship, and service to God the Father. Just as Moses reminded Israel, Jesus here reminds the devil of a passage in Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through 15, where we see that the good things in life often distract us from the main thing in life. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to you, with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, that's important given the context of Jesus, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. In other words, the giving of the world does not solve our problem. You can be given good houses. You could be given cisterns. You could be given vineyards. And you could plant good trees. But what defines you is what you give yourself. And that is service to the Lord. By his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. 
lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Jesus shows us that the greatest good is not in what the world can give, but in what we can give of the worship, service, affection, and glory being given to God the Father, the one who is jealous for us, the one who desires to have us by having our worship, by realizing that it is God alone who provides our soul-abiding happiness, that it's giving our lives to him, which is the greatest plan we could conceive of in our studies at school, in our obedience to our parents, in our careers and in our relationships, that we might give ourselves body and soul to the worship and privilege of glorifying God with all we have, and in so doing, we have everything we've ever needed. That apart from the Father, we have nothing. So Satan's getting kind of frustrated at this point. He realizes that he can't really distract Jesus away from the Trinity. And so he pivots once more. He takes up kind of the tactic that our pop culture philosophers have today. And that is this wonderful thing that has never proved true, which is maybe I can use God's word against him. Maybe I can use, Jesus really likes scripture. Perhaps I can use scripture Perhaps I could use God's word to convince God's son to do something ungodly. And it's not going to work. But a point for us here to see is that Satan loves to misuse scripture. He misused God's word in the garden. Here in the desert, he misuses Psalm 91. And he does so by taking Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, throw yourself down, son of God. Because don't you know Psalm 91? Don't you know that he will call his messengers to carry you away, that your toe will not scrape the ground? God's got great plans for you, son. Just do it. Nothing can get in your way. But Jesus responds again with a passage in Deuteronomy. And just as Moses was reminding God's people of God's faithfulness, Jesus again reminds the devil. Verses 16 through 18, right after what we just read in Deuteronomy, he says this, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently Keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. It may go well with you that you may go and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to you to give to your fathers. And so there we see that Jesus is saying, there's a right way to act before God. There's a right posture we have with God's word. And here's something our internet-saturated world needs to hear, is that there are right ways and wrong ways to interpret scripture. Just because that Facebook post has a verse superimposed on it does not mean it's being used in the right way. But rather than producing paranoia in us, as if we're rightly interpreting scripture or not, Jesus shows us how we ought to rightly interpret scripture. And that is to interpret scripture in the backdrop of God's faithfulness. If scripture leads us away from seeing God as faithful, then we're probably misusing scripture. If scripture leads us away to justify sin, we're probably misusing scripture. And Jesus here refuses to write God's faithfulness out of the pages of scripture. He sees that the Bible not only calls him to worship God, but to be wise in his worship of God. That there is a right and good way to act. That he is to consider far more than one simple thing. And that he has to humbly submit himself to God's word. And this doesn't mean that Jesus says, you shouldn't ask God if he's faithful. You should ask God if he's faithful. In fact, every point in scripture, when God enters into a covenant, 
with man, it's precisely because he wants you to see that he is faithful and trustworthy. But what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I, Satan, don't need to look somewhere else to see God's faithfulness to me because I've already seen it in his word. And for you, for us who sit this side of the cross, we don't need another proof of God's trustworthiness. He has given it to us in Jesus Christ, where God himself took on flesh in Jesus, took the punishment for your sins so that you might have access to him. In redemption, God puts his own skin in the game to say, you can cut you can come to me, that I have moved towards you and that I do care for you. And just like that, Jesus passes the third test. And look what happens next in verses 12 through 13. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time the devil left until an opportune time. Jesus won. In the midst of it, we see a little bit more that Jesus had been tempted in every way, it says, after he had resisted every temptation. And what we can gather from this is that these weren't the only temptations Jesus endured. These were probably the summary, the big three, the weightiest three that Jesus encountered in that desert. We needed a sinless head. Jesus remained sinless. He passed the test. And what this produces in us is an understanding of who Jesus is and who we are. It shapes how we resist sin. Look at how the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the what? Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace and there we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Here's the comfort of when you feel tempted, when you feel assailed by the devil, you might know that your Lord feels that with you. And he actually remained sinless. But do you understand that when it says that Jesus was tempted in every way as you are? That's not where Jesus' temptation left. Because Jesus was not simply tested as a human. Jesus was also tempted as the eternal son of God, which means he was tempted in ways you and I can't even imagine. Temptation that would have crushed us. I have a friend who's found that their kids have some severe gluten intolerance, some celiac, and so he has some kids who have never tasted a gluten-free donut. And if you put a gluten-free donut on a plate, and there is this young girl who's never had a gluten donut. Here's me, who's had a few. To whom will the temptation be more? To me. Why? Because gluten's good. <laughs> I know this not from reading a textbook, but from tasting it. Jesus knew the joy of triune intimacy with God for all eternity. And we didn't. Jesus existed in divine glory without hunger for all eternity past. You were hungry yesterday. You're probably hungry now. You were hungry moments after you were born, 
Hunger is innate to us as humans. Hunger, when Jesus took on flesh, was completely foreign to him. Jesus knew only security in heaven. He was unassailable by any physical harm, and yet when he took on flesh, he lived in a world where he would get splinters while working wood, and he would stub his toe, and he would ultimately have his side pierced and his hands pinned. None of us know what painlessness is like, for we were born through pain. But Jesus did. Jesus was the second person of the Trinity. He was God the Son. He created the whole world that Satan offered to him. He was due all glory and honor and all authority. It was given to Satan. God gave Satan a, a, a sample size of authority, but it was bequeathed to him by the one who is the authority. Jesus was not getting something that was given to him. Jesus was already due it. He was the son of God. He was Christ, the creator king. He was meant to be worshiped and adored and given all glory and honor, which means when Satan tempted Jesus, he was tempted not merely like us, which is being tempted by the unfulfilled desires of our soul. But instead, Jesus was tempted because there was a point in time where all of his desires were totally met. What we long for, Jesus knew and enjoyed for eternity. And yet even though in the flesh he was tempted with it, he as the greater Moses refused the riches of the world and chose to be mistreated as the son of God. Jesus knew that in saying yes to the devil, he would be saying no to the cross. But he refused to do it. None of us have been tempted with the power Jesus was tempted because it is on the virtue of his supremacy that the weight of sin was something that we couldn't even imagine. What Jesus, Jesus did what we could never do precisely because we needed someone to do it. If any of us were to have freedom from sin, there needed to be someone who beat it, and that's what Jesus did. Jesus did it because he had an experience with the triune God, which proved more satisfying than all the world's riches. And you, you might have that experience not by living in eternity past, but by being born again according to the Son of God. That by faith in Jesus Christ, you might know this God to be good, not because you read it in a textbook, but because he has breathed life and beauty and goodness into your soul through Jesus Christ. And you might say with Paul that I consider the riches of the world as rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Here we are invited in, not into a life of white-knuckled resistance of sin, but in the optimistic beauty of seeing sin fall down at the feet of Jesus Christ and finding obedience far more satisfying. On our own, we are destined for failure. You can't pass this test. What is truly hypocritical is for you to say, I know I'm not who I can be, but give me some time. You can't. You won't. 
Look back up. Look again at Luke 4. Adam couldn't do it. Seth couldn't do it. Enos couldn't do it. Canaan couldn't do it. Mahalaleel couldn't do it. Jared couldn't do it. Enoch couldn't do it. Methuselah couldn't do it. Lamech couldn't do it. Noah couldn't do it. Shem couldn't do it. What makes you think you can? You can't, but Jesus has. Jesus has ransomed us from the power of death by becoming a curse for us. In Christ, you're freed not only from the punishment of sin, which is death, but you are set free for a life of obedience in the power of Jesus Christ. Just as the devil was exposed as powerless over Christ the Son, Jesus was shown as faithful to all who walk in him. And this reversal gives us three specific hopes, really quick in closing, because what I want us to see is not only Christ who is supreme, but that that supreme Christ helps us in our weakness. This is where we see the trustworthiness of God. And we're just gonna look at the last few verses here, verses 13 through 15. And Jesus answered him, or verse 13. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in all their synagogues, being glorified by all. So here we see first God's faithfulness in providing the faithful with endurance. What did the devil do? He left him. At some point, the temptation stops. You might be someone in this room who feels that your whole life might be the wilderness that certainly you're not gonna make it out. But consider this Jesus who knows you. Consider the God who knows your frame and knows you are dust and yet sent his son to die for you. God will give you the strength to endure. There are times where we fail and that's where grace is good and the cross is mighty and come to Jesus, you sinner. Let him strengthen your weak and drooping knees. And yet seeing the beauty of grace does not mean that we don't have guts to obey. They don't strive with all of our might to please God. Consider the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Though the devil wages war, and though the devil, like with our Savior, might even return, there's a way of escape. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Fight knowing that God will grant endurance to his saints. Second, we see the trustworthiness of God and that we see the fruit of true obedience. Look back at Luke four fifteen, and what does it say? And he taught us, Jesus, in their synagogues being glorified by all. Does that remind us of something else in this text? What did Satan try to entice Jesus with in his second temptation in verse six? That they will give you all of their glory. But here is Jesus who obeyed and what does he get? Glory from all. Sin tries to convince us that we can only get what we deeply want when we use sin. And yet, here we see, let us not forget that it is obedience and faithfulness to God where we get what we really want. God alone has the power to give what sin falsely promises. Now, Jesus' life was not all earthly glory. In fact, it ended in tragic glory. 
It ended with him being lifted up on a cross and buried in the grave for three days. But what happened after his obedience? What happened after he obeyed perfectly enough to be the substitutionary sacrifice for you and for me and for all who come to him in faith? That painful end was not the end of his story. He was raised again to newness of life. He was given the name above all names. He ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. We lose nothing when we assess the cost of obedience through the eternal faithfulness of God's promise. Go on the internet and look up stupid competitions for money. You will find people doing and enduring the dumbest things in life for a chance to win $10,000. What might we endure, not for a chance, but for the promise of glory? For knowing that everything will be worth it for what we get at the end. And lastly, we see that God is faithful and trustworthy because just as Jesus left that desert full of the Holy Spirit, none who are saved by Jesus fight sin alone. We are filled with that same spirit. We often make our ability to resist sin about what's on the outside. If the circumstances were different, if my finances were stronger, if my spouse was more obedient, if those girls laying on the Oval on campus wore more clothes, life would be easier. Would it? Adam was full in a garden with his naked wife. Some would say he was living his best life now. Jesus was hungry and alone in a wilderness, but he had the spirit of God. Jesus gives us in our hearts what is unassailable by circumstances. To stand firm because Christ has defeated death and replaced the shackles of slavery with the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit in whom we go forward waging war because Christ has conquered sin. So let us look to Jesus and see our relief. And let us walk in Jesus as we strive to be sons and daughters of God according to the grace of the one who went before. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the son of God, that you are no fraud or hypocrite to be exposed, but instead you expose the thoughts and intentions of our hearts just as the word of God does in Hebrews 4.12, where it lays us bare before you, but immediately behind that, you remind us of Christ, our high priest, Jesus, the son of God, who was tempted in every way like us, but without sin. And so Lord Jesus, I pray today that we might know what it's like to follow you, that we might with confidence draw near the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We pray this in your name. Amen.